Amen. All right. Why don't you turn to Ephesians chapter 6, please? Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to look at verse 10 and the first part of 11. The message is entitled, The Christian Soldier in Warfare. We come to the third and the last division of this incredible epistle to the Ephesians. Verse 10 down to 24 of chapter 6. The wealth of the believer by love, by the love of God, was in chapter 1 through 3. The walk of the believer in the love of God in chapter 4, verse 1 to chapter 6, verse 9. And the warfare of the believer through the love of God, chapter 6, verse 10 through 24. By the love of God, in the love of God, and through the love of God. The focus and the theme of all of Ephesians is the power of God's love. Your love for him will allow you to yield and to submit to him. There's no purer, no more powerful motive than God's agape love. Now remember, Paul is in Rome, and he's in prison, chained to a soldier every minute of the day at this time when he's writing this letter and others. He calls himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ in chapter 3, verse 1. He calls himself an ambassador in chains in chapter 6, verse 20. And as Paul is writing this epistle, he comes to the warfare every believer is born into. And he uses this Roman guard's armor to describe the armor of God here from verse 10 to 18. Now, Paul exhorted the believer to be equipped for battle as a good soldier of Christ. And in these two verses, 10 and first part of 11, it's characterized by three truths. Let me read here for us. 6.10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. The three truths to be equipped for the battle are as follows. First, you have the implication. First part of 10. The believer is to realize his or her own insufficient weakness for the spiritual warfare. Insufficient weakness. Secondly, the declaration comes The rest of 10. The believer is to rely on the sufficient strength of Jesus for the spiritual warfare. And thirdly, the appropriation, the believer is to recognize the efficient armor for the spiritual warfare. That's the provision. Let's begin here with the first. The implication The believer is not to realize or is to realize their own insufficient weakness for spiritual warfare. There's always a danger of being overconfident, being self-assured, looking to oneself all the time. Um, That's possible to an extent in the world, and it's needed to make your way through life without getting over your head. But in the Lord, there's no room for that at all. Our confidence has to be in the Lord. 
not in ourselves. Notice the Apostle Paul addresses this truth to every believer in view of what he has just stated. Finally, my brethren, this is not coming to a close of his letter. The word finally means in respect to the rest. Furthermore, moreover, this word appears 14 times in the New Testament and in the King James, it's translated finally five times, hence two times, furthermore one time, moreover one time, it remains one time, rest one time, taken away one time, besides one time. So it depends on the context. Here it just simply means with respect to the rest or furthermore or moreover. It's a transitional word. This fear or the phrase here, my brethren, refers to those who are born again in Christ. The word indicates those who are in the family of God. You have been born again. You're in the family of God. I'm in the family of God. So we have a family here on earth that we belong to, and we have a family in heaven that we belong to. It's used again in 621 and 23. Those who are spiritually related through Christ, that transcends our race, our culture, our color, our religious background prior to that, or anything else. It transcends everything. So Christians cannot be divided because we're one in Christ. Okay? We can have freedom in different things, and I'm not talking about sin, but when it comes to life principles and how we live our life, we can't differ on that at all. We have the same manuscript. We have the same rule book. And so we don't allow anybody to pit us or to divide us, be it by earthly family or by uh, friendships or by anything else. We're one in Christ Jesus. Remember, Ephesians is one in Christ Jesus, Jew and Gentile one, and there was great animosity between the two. We've gone through that. Now, Paul has just finished speaking what is possible and should be lived out in society only by being filled continually with the Holy Spirit, not their own natural abilities, and certainly not um, without warfare. He has just finished chapter 5, verse 18 to 33, where he speaks about submitting to one another by being filled with the Spirit of God. Ephesians 5, 22 through 20, uh, 21, to one another, that you can submit to me, I can submit to you, as far as the Word says, in humility and meekness and love, without trying to abuse one another or rule one another. Wives um, submitting to their own husbands as to the Lord, because he's the head of the home, in chapter 5, verse 22 to 24. You talk about, so the warfare's there. Your flesh is there, Satan's there, the world's there. And so there's always, you know, if you don't conform and track together as husband and wife, then you're going to be at odds, you're going to be warfare. And Satan's there, your flesh is there, and the world is there all the time. Husbands are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to sanctify, cleanse her by the washing of the water by the word in order to present her a glorious church to himself without wrinkles. Holy, without blemish. So the husband still loved the wife as Christ loved the church. In Ephesians 5, 25 through 29. The parallel. A mystery. Great mystery. Children also are to obey and honor their parents in the Lord. For that is right. And it has a promise of long life in chapter 6, 1 through 3. Warfare. If you're going to experience warfare, the greatest attack is going to come in your family. 
You know why? You live with each other. <laughs> and you're patient with other people much more than you are with each other. That's flesh. So, if we depend on the Spirit to be Christians outside the home, but we put it on cruise control and get into the flesh at home, doesn't do us any good, does it? It's got to be the same in and out. Bond servants were to obey their masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as to Christ. Not with eye service as man pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God uh, from the heart, good will, doing service to the Lord, not to man. Um, God would reward them, whether they were free or slave. Chapter 5, verse 5 through 8. Then last of all was the master's. They were to obey God also in humility, giving up threatenings to the servants, knowing that they had a master in heaven and he was not a person of partiality, right? Verse 9 of chapter 6. Now, we went all over the, the culture. I'm not going to go back on it, but the culture of that day, Romans, that, that whole house scenario with the servants and the masters and all that went on, the culture would have thought of women and, and children and all this. There was... That now, he, he starts giving these principles and how houses to be run totally upside down from the culture they lived in. If you think that you feel weird in our culture today, as extreme as we've gotten, so degenerate, so perverted, we still haven't gotten there where Rome was. Okay? And Paul is blurting this stuff out because they're Christians and now they have the potential to live it. Sometimes people come and say, well, come on, next, you got to get, you know, be realistic. I am realistic. We live in a rotten world, but you're not to be rotten anymore. You used to stink in the nose of God. Now you're to be a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Because He's in you. There's more of Him than more of you. Or myself. Now the Apostle Paul, notice, wanted to remind the believer of their inability to live out the life of Christ in the natural abilities of the flesh or the old man. The abilities of flesh or the old man are not strengths, but they're rather weaknesses to fight the spiritual warfare. Listen to Paul. He confesses his own inability to be victorious in the spiritual warfare. In Romans seven eighteen, he says, For I know that in me that is in my flesh... Okay, the flesh is sinful nature, my own personal abilities. Nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. And you know the whole scenario. That that I want to do, I end up not doing. That that I end up not doing, I want to do. A wretched man that I am, he goes all the way through in chapter 7, 24 through 8, 4. A wretched man that I am, he cries out to God. Now, many people point to Romans 7 as the warfare. That is not the warfare. The warfare is in Galatians 5, 16, and 17. The flesh against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, you cannot do that which you would. In chapter 7 there of Romans, Paul, that's an autobiographical uh, sketch of his life. The only one who can say, what I, I want to do good, but I don't find anything good in me, is only a Christian. That's not a non-believer. There's no warfare, there's no battle when you're not a Christian. But he was trusting in himself, he thought he could still do it, and he comes to the end of himself, a wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me? Not what? 
Who? The person of Jesus Christ. It goes on to chapter 8. There's no more I. Only life in the Spirit. In other words, now he's fighting the warfare with spiritual weapons in chapter 8. Depending on trusting on Jesus Christ, what we're going to see here. Paul says carnal weapons cannot defeat wicked spiritual forces. Listen to him in 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against, listen, the knowledge of God. The attack is through you, but it's not against you. It's against the knowledge of God, the word of God. The word of God says you're a Christian, you're a new creature, you have a divine nature, you have the mind of Christ, you have the spirit of Christ, you have the word of God. And Satan wants to come by and say, you can't do that. You don't need that. Did he really say that? Well, it's okay if you do this. If he can get you out in the area of the flesh, you're dead. If you, if you try to combat the spiritual warfare in your abilities, in your flesh, you're a dead man or a dead woman. You'll never be able to be victorious. It's self-defeat. That was 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. Remember the sons of Sceva? Those Jewish exorcists, they attempted to exorcise a uh, demon-possessed person there, and they overcame him. They jumped on him, and they ran off naked in Acts 19, 14 through 16. Just tore him up. The demon said, well, Paul, I know, Jesus, I know, but who are you? <laughs> See, it's not the power of our flesh. It's not because we're so smart. See, in the world, you just handle the things the way you want. You're bad, do you? just smack somebody. That's it. You don't like it, you just talk to somebody. You go... Intimidation, right? Well, none of that works against Satan. That doesn't work at home. It only makes things worse. The realization of this simple principle will result in several important things. First, it will result in proper view of self so as not to be lifted up in pride. It keeps us humble because in me there's not one good thing. Paul says when he was weak, he was strong in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. So he gloried in his weaknesses, right? He gave him a, 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 a demon to buffet him day and night, keep him humble because of all the revelations God gave to him. David prayed, keep me from presumptuous sin, Psalm nineteen thirteen. Pride. Second, it will result in constant dependency on God for every believer. God places this treasure in the earth and vessel of the power and the excellence and may be of God, not of ourselves in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 11. We have nowhere to boast. All we can do is cry out to God for his help and give him all the glory when he comes through. Paul lived the crucified life. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live but not... I, but Christ lives through me. And then now, the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the God who loved me and gave himself over Galatians 2.20. Reckoning that old man dead, putting on the new man. It's a choice. But thirdly, it will reaffirm that the spiritual warfare, listen, never ceases. I've been walking with the Lord for 42 years. I wish I could tell you 
that I've gotten to a place where it's cruise control. <laughs> the older you get, the more tax Satan comes at you. You know, in, in the 60s when some of my friends were over in Nam, you know, they started getting short. Start counting those days. They don't want to go out in the bush anymore. Everybody had to spend 13 months. And you start getting short 30 days. You get a little gun shy. Because there's a greater chance you may not make it back. The devil is the enemy. With as many wiles we're going to see when we get to the second part of 11 next time. He's a master. Now, he doesn't have many tricks. He only uses a few. They work every time for every generation. You know, like the doctor used to go with a little bag? He just had a little bag. That's it. He doesn't have a U-Haul. Just a little bag. The devil has his fallen angels, his host of wickedness to do his bidding. Verse 12 is going to tell us. He's going to name them off, different ranks. The number of words... Used here in the section of the armor, many of them are military words. Power, might, wiles, against, stand, take up. It's a warfare. The minute you're born again, you're born into warfare. The minute a baby comes out of the womb, he comes forth speaking lies. And his sin nature is alive the minute they smack him. And you thought he was crying. You remember um, Delilah said to Samson, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and he said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Judges 16, 20. Self-confidence. Wow. If, um, if we're going to be equipped for battle, we must guard against pride, which is um, deceptive strength. Everything around us in the world will tell you and want you to trust and depend upon yourself and your abilities. From televisions to magazines to the self-esteem Propaganda philosophy that ran amok in the educational schools from the 70s on. Now we have such love of self that we demand things. They're entitled, right? (laughs) Experience and past victories can become a snare, even though God may have accomplished them being presumptuous. But God may not do it the same way, but I'm going to try the same thing because it worked last time, right? (laughs) But God throws you a screwball or a curb or a sinker, (laughs) not straight down the pipe. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. We've all... uh, have seen people be humble tremendously because of pride. 
It's an ugly thing. Now, if you're broken by the Lord, it's good. If you're crushed because you don't depend on the Lord, it can get pretty ugly. My dependency on God will never cripple me, but only strengthen me. People say, he's a crush. No, he's not a crush. He's my bed. He's my bed, totally dependent on him. How each of us can um, attest the situations of life beyond our abilities, be it as husbands and wives or with our children. How he has been sufficient through the most difficult times of our lives. Times when we thought, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle this. How are we going to resolve this? What are we going to do? And you stuck with the Lord and you got in the word, you got into prayer and you served in the church and God pulled you through and you came out more like him and less like you. Wow. The ability to resist the sinful world on a daily basis through every form of media. That's a war all on its own. <laughs> the minute you get up, your mind, the minute you drive out to the street, the minute you go to work, whatever. It's everywhere, especially today. We're living in an amoral society. When's the last time you saw someone blush? I can't remember. It's a lost art. God told that to Jeremiah. The pressures of life and difficulties will bring their own problems. But there will be opportunities for God to work on our behalf. Paul says um, in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. All things he calls me to do, all things he allows me to go through, then he'll be able to strengthen me. My, my responsibility is to abide and depend upon him. That's it. Our weakness will keep us very aware of the fierce warfare and the need to be scripturally strong so that we are scriptural. Jesus said, think not that I come to bring peace, but a sword in Matthew ten thirty four. So in other words, you're going to be divided from those who don't walk with God. Light and darkness. Paul told the new converts, we must enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations, Acts 14.22. Peter says that we should not think it strange when we fall into fiery trials, 1 Peter 4.12-13. You see, the implication is, if we're going to be equipped for battle, the believer needs to realize his or her own insufficient weakness for the spiritual warfare. We don't have the strength. We're weak. In my attempt to live out the life of the Spirit and the energy of the flesh will only bring greater troubles. Notice, secondly, the declaration, the believer is to rely on the sufficient strength of Jesus for the spiritual warfare then. Rest of ten there. The Apostle Paul pointed the believer to their incredible Savior. Listen to the words, be strong in the Lord. Paul understood 
the criticalness of this truth. So he was very forceful in his statement here. The phrase be strong means to be endued with, to receive or increase in strength. And it is the imperative command, not a suggestion, but rather absolutely necessary for victory in the spiritual warfare. The tense is the present tense, literally, to be strengthened continually suggesting maintenance rather than attaining it. In other words, we're to stay plugged in. Rather than like we do our phones, you know, we charge them at night and then we take them out and we run them down and we plug them in again. This is remain charged all the time. Do not get unplugged. First Timothy 1.12 says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me, Paul says, because he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry. And he goes on to share how he was a murderer and a blasphemer and everything else. God enabled him. Notice, Paul pointed them to the source of the strength in the Lord. The phrase in the Lord points to a person, Jesus Christ, their Savior. Not a power, not a source, but a person. The phrase speaks of personal relationship and on abiding in that person of Jesus Christ. Lord, as you know, Curios indicates the master, the redeemer, the possessor, the one who has authority and power and ownership over our life. All authority over us. The Greek scholar Lenski says that regarding this, no agent is indicated here. Therefore, the phrase in the Lord is probably the middle voice, which always means in union with and indicates it is the person themselves Responsible for abiding to be strengthened for the warfare. The only true source of strength. In other words, your wife cannot do that for you. And your husband cannot do that for you. Ladies. Each person has to stay plugged into the Lord. Personal responsibility. We find over 35 times in the epistle. Phrases like... Um, in the Lord, in Christ, through Christ, by Christ, and so on and so forth. A constant abiding, a constant dependency. The only true source of strength is to rely on the Lord, not just simply on the Lord to serve our own needs or desires, or even just when we're in trouble. Because there's always, you know, you got jailhouse conversions, you got people who are down and out, and they accept, but, you know, then they walk away from God, right? This is not what it's talking about. It's talking about constantly being plugged in, staying charged. Uh, Paul in 2 Timothy 2, 1 says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. His grace is sufficient, Paul says in 2, uh, Timothy, 2 Corinthians 12, when he speaks about his weakness. Now notice the apostle Paul pointed the believer to the inexhaustive power of Jesus. The incredible Savior, but now the inexhaustible power of Jesus. And in the power of his mind, Paul continues the same train of thought here. Under the idea of an imperative command. 
Believers are under the authority of Jesus. The minute that you said, Lord, forgive me, I repent of my sins. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. You take orders from Jesus. No one else. Believers are submissive to the words of Jesus. Believers are obedient to the commands of Jesus. And if he commands something in my life, then he enables me. So I really can't say I can't do it. All I can say is I will not do it. That's a harsh reality. Also under the idea of ongoing continuous reliance and dependency, realizing his or her own insufficient weakness to battle and to win the spiritual warfare. I always have to remember that. And no matter how many victories God gives to me, I cannot ever put those notches on my belt. They belong to God. So I can't ever depend upon the past victories, trusting in myself, but I could depend on the past victories that I can trust God for the next victory, right? Not myself. Relying on Jesus alone through the Holy Spirit. Now notice Paul uses two words for the um, effectiveness of the believer here. The word power, gratos, it denotes results and outcome. It is used for the resurrection of Jesus Christ in chapter 1 verse 19. That's quite a result. (laughs) That's great power. It's used for the power over death Satan had, but Jesus destroyed him in Hebrews 2.14. That's a great victory. The word might denotes endowment to enable the person. It is also used for the resurrection of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, verse 19. Both words are used together there. It's used for the ability God gives to the believer in 1 Peter 4, 11. It is his might, underline that. Not ours. His might. If it was ours, we wouldn't have to depend upon him. Rely on him. These two words look back to how the imperative command, be strong in the Lord, is accomplished and fulfilled. Tell us how. The believer being reliant constantly on the power that will guarantee the victorious outcome in the warfare. The believer being relying constantly in the might that enables them to be victorious in the warfare. So one's the process, the other one's the product. They work together. Paul, 2 Corinthians 12.10, he says, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Wow. How can you glory in that? Because you realize that in you there's not one good thing. Now you can help little ladies across the street. You can help the person down the block to paint their house. And you can do a lot of good works. And it can benefit a lot of people. Your wife, your children, everything else. But there's not one thing you can do to fight the spiritual warfare. On your own. Nothing that you have. No abilities. No talents. Nothing. Will work. 
you will be defeated every time if you do that in the flesh. And if you've walked with Christ for any length of time, you know you've eaten crow plenty of times. So carry a salt shaker. Or walk in the Spirit. One of the two. The constant exhortation of the Old Testament is to abide in the Lord for strength and power for the spiritual warfare in life. Let me give you some of these. Go back to Abraham in Genesis 15.1. It says, after, uh, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. He just came back from the uh, recovery of the loot from Sodom and Gomorrah. Melchizedek just met him, the king of Sodom and Gomorrah. And now he's freaked out. Are they going to come after me? And God says, hey, do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. Wow, what a comfort. Deuteronomy 20, verse 1. God told the people that when they went out to battle and they saw the enemy, their horses, the chariots, the people more numerous than they, they were not to be afraid. He says, for the Lord Yahweh, your God, is with you who brought you out out of the land of Egypt. Defeated all the gods of Egypt. Parted the Red Sea. Overcame all the nations in Canaan. Wow. Now you're going to trust yourself to part the Red Sea? To combat all the gods of Egypt? To destroy all the tribes of the land? Never do it. In fact, they got a little cocky when they came to uh, the second city and what happened? You got defeated, right? Ah, it's okay. We'll just take a few people. It's okay. We'll do it. Because they trusted him. Well, we can do it easy. It was the Lord. They were robbing glory from the Lord. So God said, okay, go ahead. Let's see what you can do. Came back around like little girls. Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, 7, and then 9 says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land, which I swore to your fathers and to give them. Only be strong and be courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law, which Moses, your servant, uh, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left. Let that you may prosper wherever you go. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. He says, just obey my word. Don't go to the left. Don't go to the right. Don't be afraid. Look to me. Don't trust yourself. Everything will work out okay. Wow. Isaiah 40, 28 through 31 says, Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. And the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings of eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Even the young bucks, they won't be able to keep up with God. That strength is from heaven to earth, not from earth to heaven. Those who depend on the Lord, 
Zechariah 4.6, you're familiar with it. God answered Zechariah, says, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. He's a man of war. He's never lost a battle. And he's never had to sit down and count how many men and tanks and planes the other people have, or chariots or horses. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God, Psalm 20. We used to sing that song about 20 years ago. (laughs) The same constant exhortation to abide in the Lord is found in the New Testament for strength and power for the spiritual warfare also. Listen to Jesus in John 15, 4 through 6. Abide in me and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you. He goes from branches to you personally. He's talking to his disciples. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, he, not just the branch. He goes from the illustration to the people, his disciples. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, not a branch, a person. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If there is no possibility of you and I not abiding, why would Jesus tell us? Is he exaggerating? Is he making a mistake? Doesn't Jesus know about eternal security? What's the matter with him? (laughs) Really? Listen to Paul. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty which Christ has made you free, and do not be entangled again. With the yoke of bondage, Galatians 5.1. If you cannot be entangled again, why tell you not to be entangled? You tell your son, now don't do nothing stupid because you think he cannot. Let's get serious here. Paul confesses, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. I quoted before, Philippians 4.13. Peter warns and exhorts, be sober. Be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfastly in the faith, faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of grace, who calls us to his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, and strengthen, and settle you. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10. So we must each rely on the Lord as we abide in the Lord to enable us to be victorious in the many battles in spiritual warfare. Satan is always trying to draw you out to do spiritual warfare in the flesh, as I said. It will ensure his victory over you. Listen to 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God by, for pulling down strongholds, casting the, down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought to captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now, if I recorded this, I did it purposely because it's so important because the battle is in your mind. You've got to bring your thoughts in captivity. The knowledge is, is against the knowledge of Christ. 
Our heart is evil, and you put your heart that's evil and your thoughts that are bad, and you put them together, and that's fire and gas. And you have to fight spiritually. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works that God prepared before him that we might walk in them. He told us that in chapter 2, verse 10. In chapter 3, 20 and 21, he says, For now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church of Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or think. Now look into ourselves. Unto him. We're to walk worthy of the calling he has called us in chapter 4, verse 1. We're to put on the new man which is created according to God the true righteousness and holiness in 4.24. We're to not grieve the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4.30. We're to redeem the time because the day is evil in chapter 5, verse 16. We're to submit to other believers in, in our role in the family and in marriage in chapter 5, 21 through 33. Listen to Paul's, one of his prayers for the Ephesians in 3.16. That you that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit through the through his spirit in the inner man he says it in a different way there same thing he's saying here you see jesus is the captain of our salvation and he leads us in the battle in spiritual warfare hebrews 2:10 he's a commanding officer general and if we're going to do that, we must be continually filled with the Spirit of God, Ephesians 5.18. You may brag about your car, how nice it is, how new it is, how nice it rides, but if you don't have gas, you can't go anywhere. Right? You can get in and smell it. You can get in there and pretend you're driving. Even pull the window down, hang your arm out, think you're cool, but you know you ain't going anywhere. You see, the declaration is, if we're going to be equipped for the battle, the believer needs to be relying on the sufficient strength of Jesus for the spiritual warfare. Too many are being wiped out and destroyed by Satan because they're attempting to live the life of the Spirit in the flesh, compromising God's Word, they're seeking compromise. They're watering God's word down. They're not abiding in Christ. They're not growing in Christ. They're just kicking it. It's not a good place to be, ladies and gentlemen. Notice thirdly comes the appropriation. The believer is to recognize the efficient armor for spiritual warfare. Just the beginning of 11. The Apostle Paul here ordered the believer to prepare for battle. Ready for it? Ready for the charge? Put on. Put on. Paul plays the part of the commanding general here. The imagery is one of a soldier. Uh, Roman hoplite, if you will. It's the name, man of arms. The heavy arm legionary. Not the lightweight fighter of the auxiliary uh, contingents who um, was armed only with a bow 
And um, this is the frontline soldier that Rome had depended on to conquer and to defend and to hold the world that it lived in. These guys were not wimps. Paul is writing his letter about spiritual warfare as he is chained to that Roman soldier. The imagery is very vivid. All the people that received this letter were familiar with that. Roman soldiers were all over them. All over their cities. Notice Paul gives the Christian soldier his orders at this point. Put on the armor. This is the second imperative command. The phrase put on means to be clothed or arrayed with. The verb is emphatic. Put it on, put it on. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. You know what Paul is saying. You're in a hurry. You got to go. Your kid's not moving. Here he comes. You say, where's your shoes? Well, then put them on. Emphatic. This is urgent. This is important. There's no Christian example or exempt from the orders. Everybody's included. The imperative command is in the heiress middle voice, they tell us. Now, to us in English doesn't mean anything, but the heiress indicates a decisive act in submissive obedience. It's done. The middle voice again indicates each person must do it for themselves. No one can do it for another. Doesn't happen through osmosis. Doesn't happen automatically. You, you're trusting. You're looking to the Lord. The point is clear. Each believer is personally responsible for putting on the armor. Once again, we have the mysterious blend of divine and the human agency and combination. We are told to put off the old man and it is God who enables us to obey in Ephesians 4.22. We are told to put on the new man and it is God who enables us again in Ephesians 4.24. We were predestined by God, yet we have to choose to be saved. We are kept by God, yet we must abide in Christ. You get it? It's like a slimy oyster. Just when you think you got it, it slips out of your hand, doesn't it? Listen to Paul. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. There is that mysterious combination again. Philippians 2. 12 and 13. Now notice the Apostle Paul ordered the believer to put on the armor provided by God. This is important. The whole armor of God. The armor Rome provided their soldiers was the best. Tried and true. There was no army like the Roman army. They could march with those shoes that had spikes in them. They wouldn't lose balance. They could advance their whole arm, everything. They did not bring their own armor. They did not alter the armor. The armor provided for the believer is 
a divine armor, tried and true, custom made in heaven, not of this world, but for this world, to fight spiritual battles. The armor provided is effective only in its entirety. Notice that. Not in mere selective pieces. You know, kind of like when we eat, you know, we just, you go to a cafeteria, you stick at the cake line, you know, you don't want the veggies or anything. No, 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 you got to take the whole thing. Okay? The phrase whole armor is made up of two words. The word pass, which means all and hoplon, weapons, the complete armor. Literally, all of the weapons. And it's found only two other times. In Luke eleven twenty two. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13 here. We're going to go through it article one by one. In, chapter, in verse 14, the girdle of truth is found. In 14, the breastplate of righteousness. The shoes of the gospel of peace in 15. The shield of faith in 16. The helmet of salvation in 17. The sword of the spirit in 17. Prayer in 18. That's part of the armor. The parts of the armor are mostly offensive with a few that can be defensive as well as offensive weapons, the sword and the shield. Now, there were more parts of the Roman armor than what is listed here, like the lance and other things. But Paul is not trying to make an exact comparison, but rather a parallel imagery for the spiritual warfare. That's all he's doing. You remember David refused to use the armor of Saul to fight Goliath. He trusted God to be his armor in 1 Samuel 17, 38 through 40. Saul put his armor on, you know, he didn't fit him, his helmet, he hadn't tested it. He's just a little kid. He dumped it off. I can't use this. Grabbed the stones and grabbed the sling and trusted the Lord and God took care of him. You know, when my son was deployed over to Iraq, and special recons. Um, I came on the Euphrates River, him and his recon team, and um, they were um, ambushed. And um, one of his friends got killed, and the other shot. And he got shot with an AK-47, and he had his um, chest plate on, and it threw him out of the room. Right above his heart, I put, my, I put my finger on that plate. Didn't penetrate all the way through. If he hadn't have worn that shield, he'd have been a dead man. Really, he should have been a dead man because that AK-47 was about 20 feet that hit him. It was just God's mercy. One day, my wife was, she just, when she, she said... Because his name's Xavier, too. She said, X, let me see your plate. And he showed her the plate, and she looked at it and put her finger. She goes, oh, she about died. And she says, the Lord spoke to her and said, oh, that's nothing. You should see your chest plate. You walking around with your breastplate on? Breastplate of Righteousness? To stop all those missiles of the enemy, we're going to be looking at that. Hmm. He wants to take you out. Every person born again is a Christian soldier, and 
is to submit in obedience to Jesus Christ and put on the whole armor of God to engage in victorious spiritual warfare. Listen to Colossians 1.29. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Which works in me mightily. Not himself. First Timothy 6.12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He's talking to Timothy. Second Timothy 2, 3-4. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engages, engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlists him as a soldier. When soldiers get drafted or they join, they're not worried if their insurance is paid, <laughs> if somebody fed the dog, if somebody's watered the grass. They're without distraction. They're being trained to go to war and to kill or be killed. Jude 3 says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which once and for all delivered to the saints. There's such an attack against Christianity in the scriptures today, within the church, not outside the church. The greatest deception is within the church, not outside the church. The great fall and the way come from within the church, Second Peter chapter 2. False teachers, they'll have great followings. We're seeing it happen. The importance of the armor is evident by the constant mention by Paul. Listen to Romans thirteen twelve. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Second, First Thessalonians 5, 8. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet of hope of salvation. Second Corinthians 6, 7. By the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left hand. The armor. You have to put it on early in the morning before you leave. Don't leave without it. Anytime you and I feel that we don't need or use the entire army, or armor, that I'm selective in what I need then uh, you and I will be open to defeat. And therefore, we cannot ignore any portion of God's armor. By the way, there's no armor in the back. So don't run and don't turn your back on the enemy. You have to face him. Husbands and wives, get back to back. You'll have full armor. Don't fight each other. Fight Satan together. And the world. And your flesh. The trinity of darkness. The appropriation is, if we're going to be equipped for battle, the believer needs to be recognizing the efficient whole armor for spiritual warfare. Nothing else will do. And so, 
the believers to be equipped for battle as a soldier of Jesus Christ by realizing their own insufficient weakness for the spiritual warfare, by relying on the sufficient strength of Jesus for the spiritual warfare, and by recognizing the efficient whole armor of spiritual warfare. You fighting or are you running? <laughs> you fighting against Satan or yourself? Make a big difference. And so, let's pray that as we move through this uh, armor, that you realize, even as we begin tonight, that you're a Christian soldier in warfare. Lord, thank you for your love, your goodness. We love you. We thank you. We pray you just uh, deal with our hearts, Lord. And Father, for those that are listening over the radio or over the Internet, we pray, Lord, if they don't know you, you would speak to their hearts and their need to be saved and to repent from their sins. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to hear the gospel. Before you can even consider fighting against Satan and your own sin nature, you have to be born again. You have to realize your own insufficiency to merit God's grace or to merit the presence of God. And that he died for you so that you might become the righteousness of God in him. And so Christ is the one who paid the price for your sins. He died in your place. And if you believe that you're a sinner, it's by the grace of God tonight. I cannot convince you of that. The Holy Spirit will shed that light on you. Then he will give you an opportunity to decide for yourself whether you want to repent or not. He will not force you. But he will definitely give you that opportunity. Maybe you're here and you want to accept the Lord. Repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet or the radio. Right where you're at, right now. This is your prayer repentance to him and he's going to save you. And forgive you for everything you've ever done. And give you eternal life. This is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.